This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're with Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And I've had Don Brash on uh, before on my show, but uh, it's the topic of the day economically, but also one of the big topics of the day is race relations. Uh, And we're going to be talking about inflation briefly because that's one topic of the day and we're going to be talking uh, deeply about race relations and what is happening in New Zealand and Hobson's pledge which Don heads up along with the wonderful Casey Costello who we haven't yet managed to get on but we will so Don good morning good morning Rodney well tell me every time that reserve bank goes up half a percent everyone in New Zealand groans everyone with a mortgage suffers, and presumably some people could be tipped over. Uh, Well, let me correct you in one respect. You say everyone in New Zealand groans, not quite. There are people who were getting 0.8% interest on their deposits Mm -hmm. who now find they're getting three, four, or five. They're more than happy. But you're quite right. The people with mortgages are in big strife in some cases, and some are under real pressure. Yes, and that three or four percent is that giving them a real interest rate yet, or still not, not catching up not, with inflation? Indeed, because inflation is around seven percent plus or minus, uh, three or four percent interest minus tax, uh, and savers are still going backwards. Savers are going backwards, and yet this is the extraordinary thing about the modern world, right? Where you're punished for saving and rewarded for borrowing. <laughs> That's exactly true. Exactly true. Though the ones who have borrowed won't be feeling they're much favoured at the moment because, as you say, many of them borrowed at much lower interest rates and they're facing very substantial increases in the amount of interest they have to pay fortnightly or monthly. And they could be a job loss or a hiccup in their business away from having trouble with their home mortgage or their business mortgage. Indeed, that's right. Now, of course, house prices have fallen somewhat in the last 12 or 18 months, but uh, nowhere near back to where they were, say, in 2020, just three years ago. House prices have risen very strongly, indeed, over the last 20-something years, but particularly strongly over the last three years, until about uh, 12 or 18 months ago. You always speak rather kindly of my knowledge of economics, but I've got to tell you, Don, finance is a complete mystery to me. Banking's a complete mystery to me because it seems to be nutty. But how how can a society succeed and prosper if the encouragement is to borrow rather than save? Because, you know, right from biblical times, you were encouraged to save for the rainy day, to put money away for when you get married, to put money away from uh, when to buy a house, uh, to save up for things. And that always makes sense because you realise that those savings are going into productive assets to make life easier rather than using a shovel to shift dirt. You use a bulldozer and a truck or, and a digger. Um, that's what savings is. It's that accumulation of capital. And it's what allows you to be more productive. But for many, many years, our finance system has been such that you're a mug to be saving and putting money in the post office savings bank, so to speak. 
Uh, well, yes, particularly you refer to the post office savings bank. Those people who saved in those very low interest rate uh, accounts were well and truly disadvantaged by that process. Um, some of us old enough to remember Muldoon controlled interest rates at a level which was quite explicitly lower than the inflation rate, uh, penalizing those who saved and advantaging those who borrowed. And so we can't look can't look at young people who are always just loading up their credit cards and borrowing and taking a mortgage for a boat or a car. Um, they're responding to the incentives, right? That's exactly true. And particularly true given that house prices rose very steadily for two or three decades. Buying a house with as much borrowed money as you could possibly afford made good sense in that sense. Uh, I well recall the first house that I bought in New Zealand uh, just over 50 years ago, 1971, I bought for $43,000. It was a five-bedroom house, a quarter-acre section overlooking the sea in Castor Bay, Auckland. Now, $43,000 in those days was about three times my quite substantial salary, $14,000 it was. Uh, but $43,000 for a five-bedroom house in Castor Bay sounds utterly ludicrous in today's world. Such a house would probably be cost three or four million dollars. But buying it with borrowed money in 1971 made good sense. And in recent times, people have made more money uh, in equity in their house than they have working. That's true, sadly. That is true. I look at it, we are onto this topic now, but I look at it as the destruction of the middle class because New Zealand used to pride itself on, on this huge middle class. And the middle class, to my mind, were people who um, worked, uh, had a mortgage, owned their own home, and were making their way in life and feeling a part of society. And now I look at it, and I think it's impossible now for a young couple, unless they have the support of mum and dad, or unless they have money inherited, for them ever to own a house. That's true. That's absolutely true. And it's one of the biggest scandals of the country. Now, the problem is not house prices, but the land price the houses sit on. Yes. Uh, Anne Henry, who's the property editor of the New Zealand Herald, did a column about a year, eight Anne months Gibson? ago. And I'm oh, sorry, Anne Gibson. Yes. Anne Gibson. Um, and she pointed out that the average house prices in Auckland by the seven largest home builders range from $180,000 for the smallest places, typically 65 square metres, to about $360,000 uh, for the larger houses. And you think, wait a minute, wait a minute, house prices in Auckland average around a million or a bit more than a million. How come those numbers are consistent? But of course, the reality was that Ann Gibson was talking about the price of the houses, not the price of the house plus the section. Mm. And it's the price of the section, which has really gone bonkers. And for a country like New Zealand, which is a country of what, 5 billion people, bigger in area than the UK, to paying absurd prices for tiny slivers of ground is a serious failure of policy. And you pointed out, you were pointing out, even when you're a Reserve Bank governor, I remember you had that report done by Owen McShane, uh, that I can't remember the numbers, I think it was something like where the boundary was, the urban limit was for Auckland, uh, the land inside that boundary was 20 times the value of the land outside. Was that the number? Uh, not not quite accurate, and it wasn't quite Owen McShane. But you're right, Owen McShane was very preoccupied about that issue. Yes. But the study you're referring to, I think, was one done by Arthur Grimes. That's right. 
And he did a study with it with a guy whose name I can't now recall, looking at the prices of land inside the metropolitan urban boundary around Auckland. Yes. Uh, compared with the prices outside, and not quite sure how far outside, but on average, the price inside was was just inside was about ten times the price yeah. just outside. Yeah, yeah I, I, I've always been a politician. I exaggerate everything. So if it's ten times, twenty times, a hundred times, you know, I'm making a point. It's a rhetorical point. You can't hold me to numbers, Don. But, it, but it's, it's basically a substantive correct point. And again, to take another, another example, eighteen months ago, four hundred square meter sections. In Papakura, and as you know, Papakura is some what thirty kilometres out of the centre of Auckland, were on sale for nine hundred and seventy thousand dollars. Bare land in Papakura, four hundred square metres. Now that's about a tenth of an acre. Yeah. In the old terminology, yeah. Yeah. almost a million bucks. Yeah. Crazy. A tenth of an acre, so it's ten million an acre. If you can build on it, and councils and government control where you can build, and therefore it is artificially inflated that that value. Everyone knows this. Mm -hmm. The planners know this. The planners love it, right? Because they're wanting to hold everyone in to make a smart city. So you'll hop on their train and not drive your car, and they won't build you a road because what? Climate change, who knows? But they've been against expanding the cities for 30, 40 years. That's right. And the irony is that even if your primary concern is about greenhouse gases, I mean, if you compare a suburban house made of wood with a high-rise apartment building made of concrete and steel, which requires 24-hour lighting, 24-hour elevators, uh, etc., and all the clothes drying is done by electric clothes dryers, no one hangs clothes on the line, it's not immediately obvious, to me at least, that greenhouse gases are less no. by living intensively. And on this show, we don't care about greenhouse gases, Don. Um, but, and of course, the point of that is, is that there's no coherence to any of this. And I mean, it's a tragedy because there are young couples, there, there's a wipeout of the middle class. You're either an elite who has literally inherited your wealth or you're a person who is on a benefit or you're a person working, struggling, never to own your own house and be renting for the rest of your life. This is something that New Zealand escaped from. You know, the idea that privilege would be handed down through generations. And now that is exactly what is happening again. It makes me physically ill. And it's the idea that we have the councils and the central government knowingly do this. Yeah, that's right. Phil Twyford, the, the previous minister, um, he promised on assuming office that they'd get rid of the urban boundary. Uh, more than that, uh, when Labour first won office in 2017, included in the speech from the throne was an explicit commitment to abolish the urban boundary around Auckland. Jacinda said that. Yeah, explicit in the speech from the throne. And you're right, Phil Twyford, um, uh, no longer much missed, but is the guy who understood that particular point and understood it very well. So it went into the speech from the throne, and they never did it. That's right. And in fact, uh, questioned on this or a couple of years later, the Prime Minister explicitly said that she was not going to do it. One of many broken promises. Well, it's that's the reason that um, house prices are so high. That's the reason that we're hitting on the mortgage. And we've got high interest rates now, Don. Why? Well, higher interest rates. I mean, <laughs> both of us are old enough to remember the days when interest rates were much higher than they are currently. I mean, we're talking about now six, seven, 
given 8% interest rates on mortgages. Um, when I first became involved in economic policy back in the 80s, the, the floating mortgage rate was over 20. Cheapest. Cheapest. Yeah. It's high now. It's come up because it was so low. Why was it low and now why is it high? Uh, well, it was high previously because, of course, in the 70s and 80s, New Zealand had persistently high inflation, by which I mean in excess of 10%, in some cases over 15%. So people were not willing to save at low interest rates. Uh, banks had to offer higher interest rates, and mortgage rates were up as a consequence. Um, uh, I won't go through the whole drama of 1984 and 1989 when floating rates began to come down, but uh, uh, if inflation is high, you're going to expect interest rates to be high or higher than they were. Now, in New Zealand, most people still expect uh, that the Reserve Bank will, come hell or high water, deliver a low inflation rate, and therefore, while our mortgage rates are well up, they were two years ago, they people expect them to come back down again over the next couple of years. Now, that will depend on the Reserve Bank actually delivering on its commitment to get inflation back to around 2%. Mm. And we did a lot of money printing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, we basically had a number of factors driving that inflation, one of which was substantial fiscal expansion by government, the government spending more than it takes in tax revenue, and very low interest rates. And the combination of those two things, uh, plus some offshore factors, which, of course, we can't directly control, price of oil and so on, uh, all those together created this inflationary blip. And and. What the governor of the Reserve Bank faces now is that people are beginning to expect that inflation rate to persist. And the key issue for him is to make sure that inflation expectations begin to track down again. I mean, I've never forgotten being on a television program many years ago when New Zealand had high inflation. And the question which uh, viewers had been asked to send in recommendations on was, how do we reduce inflation? And one person who I was on the judging panel, so I remember this rather well, I can't recall what the guy who won the competition uh, suggested, but the person who got second suggested that because inflation is caused to a large degree by people expecting prices to go up, because they expect prices to go up, they rush out and buy. And lo and behold, because everyone's doing that, prices lo and behold do go up. He said, of course, to, to fix this, you have to get people to expect prices to fall. And if you expect prices to be lower next month than today, you hold off buying until next month. And of course, retailers have to cut their prices to get their sales moving, etc. He said, lo and behold, uh, prices start to fall. He said, what we need is what he called price slump sleuth teams, or pst for short, <laughs> to spread the rumor that prices were going to fall. And he recommended his mother-in-law as the first leader of one of these pst teams. <laughs> That's funny because um, I read Lyndon Johnson's the beautiful biography that Robert Caro wrote of Lyndon Johnson, and um, who of course was uh, president of the United States upon the assassination of John F. Kennedy, but he had been a congressman and a senator, and it's just one well, of it's just so remarkable because it's sort of like there's nothing new in politics, but back in the day, I'm talking in the twenties and thirties. They used to pay people to go from bar to bar spreading rumours about their opponents. 
And, um, you know, how rumours start, you know, well, he drinks too much or something like that. And it would go right around the electorate. And it made me laugh because um, it was sort of like a, a physical form of Twitter that this misinformation would be spread about your um, opponent. And, oh, no, no, it's definite. No, no, definitely he's a drunk. Oh, worse. They actually had far worse things I wouldn't share on radio. But they'd be telling about it because they're such good stories. No, it's definite. I heard it from you know, a mate who knows and from the pub. And they would deliberately target places in each little town uh, we would go. So you'd do that with your piss team, wouldn't you? You'd go in there and you'd spend, oh, no, no, prices are coming down for sure. Um, do you think, Don, that it might be hard for you to say this, but are you comfortable that the settings are right or do you think we're going to see have to have further hikes? Well, I think the market itself expects further hikes. Uh, I think the move the other day where the rate went from 4.75 to 5.25, that's the official cash rate we're talking about, uh, most people say that isn't the final movement from the Reserve Bank in this tightening cycle. Most people think it will need to go up at least a further 0.25. Uh, I think um, at least is the right description. I think we may well have to go higher than that. Mm. But a lot does depend on keeping those inflation expectations under control. Because if they the, get away, it's just going to spiral. Well, that's right. And I think uh, one of the things the governor uh, has to be doing is going on the countryside, talking to people, saying that uh, 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 these, this inflation will be controlled come hell or high water. Mm. Um, funny enough, one of the things that happened when, when inflation was moderately high when I first became governor, interest rates were very high, and uh, the prime minister briefly, you may recall, was Mike Moore. And he called me in to discuss the situation. And he said, why are the rates so high? I said, because people expect inflation to be high on an ongoing basis and wage demands reflect that. He said, you mean if wage demands were less aggressive, you might be able to reduce interest rates a bit? I said, in principle, if there's less evidence of inflationary pressure and wage demands start moderating, then yes, interest rates will come down. And uh, Mike Moore called Ken Douglas in. He was then head of the Federation of Labor and said, uh, told uh, Ken Douglas what I had said. And Ken Douglas, quite extraordinarily, went around the countryside, talked to his union mates and said, look, if you want to get that so-and-so brash to moderate his interest rate hikes, uh, you'll need to moderate your wage demands. And, and uh, to some degree, he succeeded in that. Well, we've got to be impressed in this way. While it's depressing to have um, inflation back and uh, interest rates being hiked, we've got to appreciate that the system is actually working, isn't it? Like, Because we could very readily lose control of this. And in the past, um, we would have. Yeah, I think one of the great things that Roger Douglas did in the 80s was create a structure where the Reserve Bank is held accountable for delivering mm. an inflation rate, which the politicians choose. And uh, the governor, like him or, or hate him, is is signed up to that. And mm. that's very, and very that, good. And that system is staying in place and doesn't seem to be under threat because we've got a mad left-wing government now and they're not threatening to uh, overturn it, are they? Uh, no. I mean, they clearly moderated the, the mandate slightly by saying, look, uh, Governor, you have to be concerned about not only inflation, but also about employment. Now, I think that was a mistake, but perhaps not a very serious mistake because 
when inflation is high, the chances are very high that unemployment will yes. be unsustainably low. Yes. So that both the employment mandate and the inflation mandate point in the same direction. If you look at it properly. Yeah. Now, the problem is if, if inflation expectations get away and wage increases are, are high when inflation is low, then, then you've got a, a conflict. Mm. So leaving that immediate issue behind, Don, I want to go across to race relations in this country. And this is an extremely sensitive issue for everyone in, in New Zealand at the moment. And it's divisive on all sides. It, a lot of us feel as though we can't talk about it. Um, a lot of people get angry if you do talk about it. And um, the principle of one person, one vote, and we're all equal before the law, has now gone from public discourse. And it's now a racist thing to say that we should all be treated the same. This is a very sticky place for New Zealanders, and yet you've been prepared to speak up and talk about it. And this was something you did as the leader of the National Party. It's not something you've ever shied away from, uh, and you've kept at it. Um, can you take us through where you see race relations at? Well, it's funny, a funny paradox in some ways, because in one respect, New Zealand's race, race, relations, uh, race relations are remarkably good. I mean, you walk around Auckland, uh, for example, uh, and I say Auckland because it's, it's the, the, the sort of most cosmopolitan city in the country, and you find people of all kinds of ethnicities wandering around. Uh, Asians, both Chinese and Indians, um, Filipinos, Maori, Pacific Islanders, Europeans. On the face of it, everything is looking pretty smooth. Uh, and, and even beyond that, I think back, what, two or three years now, uh, to the early uh, 2020, the leader and deputy leader of National, the leader and deputy leader of New Zealand First, the deputy leader of Labour, the co-leader of the Greens, and even the leader of the ACT Party, were Maori. Mm. And no one regarded that as odd or strange or something to remark on. It was just part of who we were. Uh, and yet, on the other hand, you've got this absurd and exceedingly dangerous, in my view, uh, tendency to interpret, to reinterpret the Treaty of Waitangi into something which it never was. The idea that the treaty created a partnership between the British Crown and Maori chiefs is obviously a total nonsense. And yet, interpreting it as a partnership uh, elevates someone who chances to have some Maori ancestry, and now with other ancestry as well, into a position of constitutional preference. And, and long term, that's a disaster for New Zealand. We have, though. Don't we? It's a great point that you make, and we should keep reminding ourselves that as you wander around the community and you work with people, there's Maori, there's not a family in New Zealand that wouldn't have Maori members. Um, we're not a stratified society like, say, America with blacks and whites who have kept to themselves in terms of interbreeding. Uh, Maori were amazing because they quickly ad adapted and adopted into colonial ways, if I can use that phrase, and the intermarriage was huge. 
and we're the beneficiaries of that. New Zealand is a is a proper melting pot. And we prided ourselves on that. We thought we were wonderful because we treated everyone the same. And of course, there were unacceptable jokes and um, put-downs and all the rest of it. But um, by the overall scheme of things, it was very good. And also, we should remember that in those days, you got put down if you wore glasses, had red hair, or were fat. You know, it was sort of that sort of culture that, you know, people put you down. But it seems to me, Don, that we have professional race baiters in New Zealand that stir it up, that make it, that emphasize it. And the professional race stirrers are politicians. And I always think of Willie Jackson, and you can list a whole lot of them, who um, those green MPs and everything is about racism and colonialism. It's stirred up within our news media, who constantly, constantly go on about race and racial issues and, again, agitate. Um, Our government departments have become overwhelmed by racial considerations, our schools, and, of course, our legislation from our parliament. So our legislation actually looks to whether you're married or not. It's written into the law. So as a community, we get along fine. But over top of us is this overlay of racial division by professional race baiters, because I think that's how they generate headlines. I think that's how they generate votes. That's how they generate um, controversy. And like the only thing that ever happened to Willie Jackson of any significance from to be a politician, and a lot of politicians, was that he was born Maori. I mean, what would he be on about in politics if he hadn't have been? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um that's right. I, I think I think you summarise it very well, Rodney. Um, but it is it is quite sinister because the reinterpretation of the Treaty of Waitangi, and I think that's what it is. It's careful it's a reinterpretation of it. Uh, the argument runs that the treaty really created a partnership, first of all, and also in Article Three promised equal outcomes for all New Zealanders. Now, of course, that's a total nonsense. It didn't promise equal outcomes. How could it promise mm. equal outcomes? It promised equality of opportunity, quality of, of treatment under the law, mm. uh, which is what clearly the words say. Uh, and yet we had, for example, a year or so back, you recall, a Maori health authority justified on the basis that Maori life expectancy was a bit shorter than European life expectancy. And therefore, that, quote, proved, unquote, that the health system was racist. Mm. That was total garbage. Chinese New Zealanders live longer than European New Zealanders. No one seriously suggests that's because the health system favours Chinese New Zealanders, when there are a number of ethnic and and economic factors which explain uh, Maori death rates being a little lower, being a, a little, life expectancy, I mean, being a little lower than that of European New Zealanders. They tend to smoke more heavily. Uh, they tend to uh, work more physically demanding jobs. They frequently have poorer housing. All factors which affect life expectancy, nothing to do with race at all. 
And of course, it's deflecting because you'd look at that without the um, overtones of systemic racism and you'd say, well, this is interesting. Why is it that Asians are living longer? Why is it that uh, European New Zealanders are living longer? Why is it that Maori are doing poorly? And if you can just grab off the shelf, oh, it's systemic racism, then you've answered it. But we know you haven't made a difference. And if you looked at it, you might find diet, you might find exercise. There'd be all sorts of reasons that you could be researching that would actually save Maori lives, that allow them to live healthier and longer. I don't have the answer to that, but if you were looking, you would have a chance of finding it. But the assumption is, oh, systemic racism, therefore the solution is more racism to counter the systemic racism. I mean, it's the circularity of it. And also, too, that the treaty, as written being a Victorian document, was about the individual and not the group. That's right. So they wouldn't have conceived of a group or a partnership that would have been, that's woke thinking in a way, that sort of postmodernist thinking, because the idea that the Queen would tie all white people to all people with a different pigment and separate them as two groups and say, oh, you're in a partnership, that is just so not, the case it's just impossible to think that they'd be thinking in those work tomes but it's rather wonderful isn't it because the 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 postmodern thinking that is driving our successive governments is that oh there are groups there's a maori group and there's a non-maori group and um oh look um, they agreed to be in a partnership together god knows how and that travels down generations goodness knows how and that group was mean to that group so the guilt of that is still with that group god knows how oh look this group when on average isn't doing as well as that group on average oh we've got to have racism against this group in favor of this group to try and bring the average to parity this is a recipe for authoritarian control because if you're going to achieve equity you actually have to be able to control what everyone does and dish it out and it's also a recipe for extreme division and upset because one group is feeling ripped off and another group is feeling ripped off Mm -hmm. That's right. And they're each blaming each other. That's right. So Mary are saying, well, I'm not doing as well as I should, therefore um, I'm being ripped off. No personal responsibility in this. And the other group, the non-Mary, saying, well, I'm paying for all this. I'm being ripped off. And this community, which is wonderfully integrated, and interbred and intermarried and work together, play together, uh, live together, um, are being artificially sliced and diced by legislation and government thinking. Yep, absolutely right. Good good summary, Rodney. And, well, I've come to a better view of it, Don, um, through Reality Check Radio because I've had people, guests on who've been explaining to me, you know, the origins of this woke thinking. And I can now have a, 
I used to be totally baffled by it, but I can now see at least how they're thinking and um, begin to see it in a, in a wider context. It doesn't help me know how to deal with it because these people aren't given over to reason. Willie Jackson, Willie Jackson, Marima Davidson, they're not given over to facts, are they, or logic? Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, I take some comfort from the fact that there are a lot of Maori, I mentioned some of them earlier, who want no part of this nonsense. None whatsoever. I mean, Simon Bridges, Paula Bennett, uh, Winston Peters, Ron Mark. David Seymour. David Seymour. Uh, they want no part of it at all. But they all have been entitled, but entitled to call themselves Maori. Uh, I mean, I disagree with Winston on many issues, but on this issue, he and David Seymour absolutely agreed. Mm. You want no discrimination on the basis of race. And their response to you, Don, is again being classic wokeism. And again, I can see this because they see, they label you not by the quality of your character or by the strength of your argument or by the evidence that you bring. They label you according to your identity. Mm -hmm. And as far as I can tell, you're a white, cis, old male. <laughs> That's exactly true. Yeah. And, and so you are wrong. And in fact, you are the oppressor of Maori. You're the reason that Willie Jackson isn't prime minister. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would certainly do my best to prevent Willie Jackson being prime minister. <laughs> but isn't it interesting? Right. Like, Willie's done so well. <laughs> he, he's a millionaire many times over. Mm. He's been a very successful broadcasting career, all on the tip. And um, an MP, a minister, and according to him, he's oppressed. Yeah, yeah. And you are a nasty piece of work that's holding him down. Yeah. Fortunately for me and for my credibility, my co-spokesperson for Hobson's Pledge is herself Maori, and she feels as strong on this issue as as you and I do. She is she's wonderful, Casey Costello. We're definitely going to have her on, but of course, that's that great line that she can't be Maori. Well, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. you can't beat them. No, she can't be. And their response to you, Don, and again we can see this with you know through Reality Check Radio and having Trevor Loudon on, Mary Mary Buskey on, and Mary Buskey now hosting her own show, which is just a delight. Their response to you, like with Posey Parker, is to shut you down. Yeah. Media won't give you airtime. And when you turn up being invited to speak at Massey University. The vice chancellor was it? Mm -hmm. The vice chancellor denied you entry to speak. Mm -hmm. And if anything was, I was due to speak about my time as leader of the National Party. There's nothing specifically about Maori in the subject of my speech, but she felt that I might say something which might offend some of her, her Maori staff. It was the pretext. And then they use this wonderful thing over and over again, isn't it? Health and safety. Yeah, that's right. And health and safety is expanded to mean that if Don Brash speaks in this hall, one of two things could happen. I might be zombie-like dragged in and listen and be offended 
and triggered and my health would suffer and my safety be compromised or the mere fact that I attend a university that Don Brown and it's a health and safety issue. This is, and of course, this is the wonderful thing when you look across it, it is an entirely consistent pattern of behavior of these wokesters. And this is a vice chancellor of a university. Who not only was a vice chancellor, but had written an article in the Herald, an op-ed piece in the Herald, just weeks before, saying how much he valued free speech. And yet, without knowing anything about the content of my speech, which was officially to the History Society at Massing University about my time as leader of the National Party, as I said, she she vetoed my speech the day before it was due to be made. On the Tuesday, it was due to be given on the Wednesday. She said it was on security grounds, and yet she admitted finally that she hadn't just consulted either the either the police or the university security people. Nasty, nasty, nasty woman. Nasty, toxic philosophy on life. Um, and this is what is so troublesome because it is being indoctrinated. And, of course, it's a very backward-looking philosophy. It's like how you, how not to succeed is to always be looking back, backwards and be always blaming someone else. And the best thing, even if you are in dire circumstances, is to always believe that you can do something about it. Um, and that you live in a society that you can get a, get on. Um, just apropos this, and I'm hitting you with this, but we had this last week. We had this extraordinary statement by Kerry Allen. Did you follow that, Don? The Radio New Zealand one? Yeah. I didn't actually hear the detail of it. No, well, it's just, as, um, I can't get over this, but Kerry Allen's a minister, and she has a new partner because she had a son with her other female partner which sort of and now she's got a new female partner who's Maori and who was I think hosting the midday radio mm -hmm. New Zealand report and apparently it was very good but she got passed over by radio New Zealand in favor of Ingrid Hipcris um, who's another journalist working for radio New Zealand who's not married and Kerry Allen, at the farewell, because her fiancé, she decided that she was leaving Radio New Zealand because of the horror of not getting this job. So then they have to put on a farewell party, and Kerry Allen gives a speech which was recorded and basically blames Radio New Zealand for being a bit racist, right? And you think, isn't this where we've got to? Where I can't imagine two more privileged people. Mm -hmm. One's a minister. You know, there's 20 ministers in New Zealand, um, maybe 24, 26 if you count ministers outside. These are the people that run the country. Mm -hmm. You have her fiancé. She's a news... Uh, uh, Host a show on Radio New Zealand, very, very powerful and responsible mm -hmm. position. Radio New Zealand, which is woke central, um, suddenly being accused of racism. And the reason that these two ladies aren't succeeding is, to me, the issue is bad enough that she's a minister. But this idea that I would have got that job if I was white. 
Mm-hmm. Isn't that where we've headed to and landed up? Yeah, and it's it's deeply depressing, uh, I must say. Um, I personally used to listen to Midday Report on Radio New Zealand with, with gritted teeth because Money Dunlop insists on... Oh, that's a name, so was it? Ma- Money Dunlop. Money Dunlop. Yeah. I've insisted. never listened. So. Well, I, 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 it's one of the few occasions I listen to uh, RNZ. But but uh, she persisted in devoting a large chunk of, of the, the language to, to Maori. And um, I don't have any objection to taxpayer funding Maori language radio or indeed Maori language television, but I, I resent having to listen to Maori on an otherwise English language uh, taxpayer funding mm. station. Mm. Well, the other reason is is that they couldn't see that she probably didn't get the job because she's engaged to a cabinet minister. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's very hard to be uh, a morning report host and be engaged to a cabinet minister and escape any allegation of bias. I mean, That's that right. Caesar's wife right. doesn't have to be, um, she has to be, what is it, above suspicion, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's not enough that she she be pure of heart. She has to be totally above suspicion. And that would taint Radio News. I mean, the opposition, the National Party and the ACT Party would have a field day with that appointment. Mm. Mm. I'm, so just get me right. I'm going on to be interviewed in front of the nation by uh, a lady that's married to a cabinet minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that, that doesn't work. No, no, but Kerry right. Allen couldn't see. That. It was all about race. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this is reflecting all the way down to the school ground, to young people and kids that, I'm going to say identify as Maori, not, not because I believe you can self-identify these things, but it's so weird now because... Um, we're so interbred, we're such a melting pot that um, it's quite hard to tell a Maori sometimes. And I will recall when the first Naitahu settlement was done in what, 1997, I think, by the Bolger government, and I discovered to my astonishment that two of my executive committee at the Reserve Bank were Naitahu. Yeah. I had no idea they were Maori at all. They looked as European as, as, as you and I do. Uh, but they did have some Naitahu ancestry. Yeah. So we are, as you say, heavily intermarried, and it's frequently quite hard to uh, to tell if someone is Maori or not. Yeah, and that's been the wonderful thing. And interbred is that playing rugby, yep. playing sport, going yep. to school, yep. um, having that um, intermixing, and it's exactly as you say, it's wonderful because we do all get along, but... Uh, here we have a cabinet minister and a very privileged um, radio journalist uh, putting their failure to get a position down to racism by, of all places, Radio New Zealand. Yep. Bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and um, you've really got to be searching out the offence to find that one, right? Um, what... Do you think is the way we reverse this? Because there's a, a a sense of powerlessness about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think most New Zealanders want a colour-blind society. That's my my perception. 
And in a sense, the reaction to my famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, Ariwa speech back in 2004 proved that. I mean, yes. there was the most dramatic increase, so uh, Tom Brunton said at the time, uh, in any political party support uh, between two successive polls in New Zealand history. We jumped from 28% to 45% between two polls. It was such a dramatic change that we did the poll. Uh, why was that? Because most New Zealanders thought that on that particular issue, at least the National Party was saying what they believed. Mm. And uh, uh, subsequently, actually went as high as 48, which was very unusual, as you well know, in an MMP kind of environment. Mm. Uh, I think most New Zealanders do want society where every citizen is treated equally before the law. Uh, but unfortunately, we become afraid to say it out loud. Well, that's where you're so important, Don. Because um, you have got the courage to say it out loud. You've got some stature having been Reserve Bank Governor and Leader of the National Party and the Leader of the ACT Party. You've got some stature to say it out loud. But each time you speak out loud, not only have you got a lot of support uh, that might be silent, you encourage more and more of us to speak it out. And I, I, I want to really emphasise that. It's by actual people standing up to be counted, the brave ones that do it first, that have the platform, and others will follow, and that's what it will take. And that was 2005, Don. 2004. 2004. Mm -hmm. I've got to say, um, reflecting back on it, oh, I should also say the thing that really excited me, Don, about that was you went on a TV interview with Kim Hill. I remember it well. Man, <laughs> I have never forgotten it. I hope you've got a tape somewhere because that was um, remarkable because she was angry. Mm. She was vicious. She was going to tear you a new one, and she tore into you. And I was watching it, and I was thinking, oh, yeah, Don's going to fold and say, look, I might have gone a bit far or yeah you're quite right and sort of do the Kiwi thing or the political thing and sort of meet Kim Hill halfway but you actually stuck to your guns and you doubled down and I actually think that's where you won the vote yeah I think that was a very significant interview I agree with that uh, another thing that helped me quite a lot uh, ironically uh, was the Sunday Star Times they voted their entire front cover and it was a broadsheet then I think it still is a broadsheet, uh, to a picture of me and Pauline Hanson looking at each other across the page. Mm. Inference being that bastard brash is New Zealand's Pauline Hanson. Mm. Uh, well, I didn't feel like I'm Pauline Hanson at all, but I was saying let's have one standard of citizenship come hell or high water. You were lucky it was Nero Fittler. <laughs> <laughs> Posse Parker yeah. got yeah. that off yeah. the treatment by the New Zealand Herald, didn't she? <laughs> she did indeed. <laughs> she was yeah. she, she would have been happy to have had Pauline Hanson, but she got Adolf Hitler. So there, there are a lot of people in New Zealand who basically want a society where every citizen has equal rights. I mean, if I, I mean, I, I first became aware of the race issue long before I went into politics. I was lucky enough as a teenager to have living in our home a Sri Lankan Columba Plan student, taken in by my parents when uh, Foreign Affairs were looking for a board for these students for a few weeks. He stayed with us for five years. Wow. And he effectively became part of the family with my brother, effectively, just five years older than I was. 
And I no longer saw him as an Asian or a Sri Lankan. He simply became mm. my older brother. Um, and not many of us have the good fortune of having someone who becomes a part of the family, but who's clearly ethnically different. Mm. And I was very lucky in that respect. And so of I, course, come from a country that was torn apart by absolutely. racial divide. That's right. And racial yep. preferences. Yep. And yep. exactly the same thing that we're seeing here. And if you look around the world, the countries which have built in racial preferences, Malaysia is another example, mm -hmm. where where uh, Chinese and Indian Malaysians are regarded as second-class citizens because they're not Malays. And the consequence of Malaysia is, is quite bad. It's an old book now, but still a good one. Thomas Sowell's book, Affirmative Action, A Worldwide Disaster, yep. where he can't find a country that has offered preferences to one race over another, whether it be a minority or a majority, where it has come within a very few short years, um, certainly less than a generation, uh, physical conflict. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing about that 2004-2005 period, and I've reflected on this, Tom, you famously had the National Party had those billboards, which were unbelievably powerful, where they had red and blue, and it was a difference between Alan Clark as Prime Minister and what it would be like to have you as Prime Minister. And you had the famous one, which caused us all to go a bit ouch, right? And this was the Iwi Kiwi billboard. But that was the greatest piece of political advertising in hindsight that I've ever seen, mm. it worked on so many levels and it proved has proved prophetic. Mm. And it worked in one level because you went, ouch, you know, mm -hmm. right? And you thought, hmm, it's a bit sort of, it came across as a bit divisive. But because it made you go, ouch, it forced you to see it and to think about it. It was one of those great moments where you jump. And the Iwi Kiwi was so extraordinarily clever because you had Kiwi as a whole, Kiwi as a whole, and Iwi off to one side. Yeah. And Iwi fits inside Kiwi. That's right. That's right. So it was clever because it was either we're all Kiwis or we're going to be Iwi versus Kiwi. Yep. And that sounds extremely um, prophetic now yep. because when you look at three waters, that's precisely the situation, right? We have Iwi one side and Kiwi on the other. Mm -hmm. um, prophetic. Yeah, I was... Those Iwi Kiwi billboards were so clever with that Iwi and then Kiwi and Iwi wrapped into Kiwi and it's whether we're all one as a nation with our differences and Iwi being part of Kiwi or whether Iwi to be were to be pulled apart and be separate. And of course Three Waters is exactly that. Yes, Three Waters is a very serious issue. The public are beginning to get an understanding of it. 
uh, is serious issue on a whole series of different levels. I mean, first of all, it's an aggregation of assets built up by by ratepayers over decades into four enormous and potentially very bureaucratic organizations grouping water infrastructure in Hokitika, in Vicargo, and Christchurch. Uh, no evident logic in that at all. Nelson has grouped in with Wellington, Hawke's Bay, and Gisborne. I mean, again, no obvious logic to that. So that's crazy. But worse still, the law requires that half of the boards controlling those entities must be iwi. And, and uh, if iwi don't understand the issues, they must be given training so that they can understand the issues. Worse still, there are what is called temana otewai statements, which only Maori can be involved in setting down, and they will lay down the rules by which these water entities must uh, operate. So it's a serious uh, assault on what we've normally taken as, as a democracy. Uh, right. It's interesting too, Don, sorry to interrupt, mm. but it's interesting too because it's Iwi, not Maori. That's right. That's quite right. It's a point uh, that I perhaps hadn't fully appreciated. It is the tribe which has the authority. It's not a democratic Maori process. No, it's not like the electoral role. No, it's not. Quite different. So it would be like in the electoral role saying Iwi will decide who the MP will be. Yep, that's true. So it's Iwi that are getting to decide through whatever means they choose who will be their representative and basically run your water. That's true. And that's going to lead to some great conflict under Be Iwi. It, that's right, between Iwi. That's quite yeah. right, inter Iwi. Uh, because, of course, Iwi are not known for their unanimity on a whole range of issues. No. <laughs> and then also the Iwi divide and subdivide and what's an Iwi and what's not an Iwi. Yep. And that won't be set out in the legislation. Uh, one of the few exceptions that may be, in fact, Entity D, which is basically most of the South Island, which I presume is a boundary drawn on the basis of what was the Naitahu boundary. Um, well, we in the South Island regard them as recent interlopers. <laughs> That's right. I don't see them. Don't think they see themselves that way, Rodney. But uh, yeah, but in many areas, and and Entity B, which encompasses most of the North Island except Northland, no, and, and except Hawke's Bay and Gisborne and Wellington as well, but most of the Central North Island have many iwis, mm. many iwis, and and of course, a lot of Maori don't have an iwi that they can identify to, mm -hmm. but they can vote on the electoral roll. Yep. And then a lot of Maori are in multiple iwis. Mm -hmm. Do they have to have, I mean, and then how are the iwi to decide? It's just going to be a corporate elite, a yep. tribal elite who run water and who happen also to run very large corporations, thanks very much to the treaty settlements and our economic powerhouses within our community now, owning everything from hotels to tourist holdings to forestries and all the rest of it. Getting stronger party because they don't pay corporate tax. Yeah, don't pay corporate tax, have, a, have, a, have an advantage, and don't actually have to account to the shareholders um, for the use of their capital. And they're going to be deciding whether a competitor gets water or sewage disposal or not. 
And of course, we saw the same thing with the Canterbury Regional Council, you recall. Yes. Where this government decided that there would be two additional people appointed at the boards of that, that council, <laughs> appointed by, by Naitahu. Uh, Maori and Canterbury, of course, have the right to vote for the members of that council like everyone else does. But in addition, Naitahu has the right to appoint these two additional... Well, that's the example of a tribal appointment, right? That, that's right. And again, direct conflict of interest. Canterbury Regional Council is involved in planning consents, water consents, and things of that kind. Naitahu is a very big landowner in Canterbury. Uh, will they will they excuse themselves on decisions on water? I don't know. No, of course not. And uh, they won't excuse themselves on planning decisions. And, of course, after the earthquake, they were given the choice of every bit of land that was sold mm -hmm. as first rights of refusal. It's a – well, you've described it very simply and understandably. So what we're saying is Three Waters – because i got to admit my eyes glaze over it – Three Waters is about taking sewage, stormwater, drinking water off your local council – which you have an ownership interest as a ratepayer and you have accountability through your council and who you vote on, taking it off them with no compensation. Where does the debt go, by the way? Do we know? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, there is some small compensation. I think the government allocated a couple of billion dollars, for, okay. but, but it's very trivial. Yeah, it's taken out of the council and given to this other entity of which there are how many in New Zealand? Four, Four in New Zealand. That entity will be big. It will control the water and the stormwater and the sewage. It will have half of the representatives are chosen out of the councils or by a vote. Uh, I well, the 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 way in which directors get appointed is quite a convoluted one. But I think you can say that half of them will represent councils and half of them will represent iwi. And so the councils choose who they'll put on it and the iwi will choose who they put on it. The iwi are going to have a big say even over the councils who mm -hmm. they appoint, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So this is going to be run to turn around by the people, for the people. What was that line? It's three. By the people, for the people. Of it's the people. Of the people. Of the this is going to be for the iwi, by the iwi, of the iwi. Yeah, and as they quite apart from that board representation, as I mentioned a moment ago, you've got these Tamana Otewai statements, which can only be made by Iwi, which will determine uh, the operating principles of these of these entities. And this is on track. This is on track. The the law has has already been passed. Now these entities are not yet created, but they're in the process of being created. Uh, National and ACT have both said they would scrap them. Uh, what that means in National's case, I'm not entirely clear. But certainly David Seymour has been absolutely unambiguous that race must not become part of New Zealand, uh, what's the word I want, uh, governance arrangements. So what we don't know, because as you and I, as having some involvement with politicians over the years, when they say we're going to scrap that, that doesn't necessarily give you comfort um, because they don't necessarily go back to what we had because you could scrap the legislation and still have these entities and just tweaked around a bit. 
they've got to be held to account to say, well, when you scrap it, do we go back to what the situation is now with the councils owning the assets? Yeah, and that's very unclear. Uh, Simon Watts, who's the local government spokesperson for the National Party, has said uh, unambiguously that we want no part of co-governance in government services. Um, now, whether the National would stick with that in government uh, remains to be seen, I guess, if they become a government. Um, I'm encouraged by the fact that, that David Seymour is saying this is such a fundamental constitutional, constitutional issue facing New Zealand, not just the three waters, but the whole question of uh, Maori position in our democracy. We have to debate it thoroughly and have a referendum on uh, the issue so that we lock in for all time whether this is, in fact, a democracy where one person is one gets one vote, irrespective of ethnicity, or whether it is, in fact, to be a country where there are two clearly distinct groups, uh, those who have a Maori ancestor and the rest. See, I, I'm a purist, Don. It's a bit like I can't... You don't need to have a vote on slavery. It's just wrong. Do you know what I mean? And the idea that you have a... Uh, let's have a referendum on whether we will have... Um... Well, Rodney, uh, <laughs> I agree. But the question is, how do you lock um, out for all time this nonsense? That's the issue. Well, it's it's the sea foreshore and seabed, right? Yeah, that's you, right. You cannot put this genie back into the box because there'll be protests, there'll be yelling and shouting. Absolutely. And, of course, these, these um, iwi are hugely economically powerful. Yep. Hugely political power, politically powerful, and they've got foot soldiers that they fire up and yep. fund. Yep. Oh my goodness! Well done. Um, how do we find out about Hobson's Pledge? Because this is the one organisation that's saying on all of this. Uh, well, uh, it's got a good website. Yes, and uh, there's a lot of great material on there. Yep. Yep. Um, and and let's face it, we've got now well over a hundred thousand people. Who get our material regularly? Yeah, so it's become quite a significant. Uh, and group. I keep up to speed on these things, although I don't sound it sometimes through your mailing list. So I do love your newsletters. I appreciate them. I do appreciate hearing from Casey Costello, who will get on the show. So I, I encourage listeners that are interested in what's going on, if nothing else, let alone actually helping, to uh, contact Hobson's Pledge and sign up on their web page. We've had a wonderful morning with uh, Dr. Don Brash again, covering inflation, race relations, that famous 2005 election campaign, those iwi kiwi billboards, which made everyone go ouch, but made us think. And looking back in hindsight, you can't help but think, boy, if that election had gone different, we wouldn't have all this nonsense now. So votes count. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio.